All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your space heretic speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about Xenos by Dan Abnett. This was originally published in 2001. Xenos is a Warhammer 40k, or 40,000 if you prefer. It's a Warhammer 40k book. It is the first in a series, though it does function as a complete narrative of its own as well. But I read it in an omnibus edition called Eisenhorn. And this is another surprise bonus episode that I am doing for a listener. And I, I really, really enjoy this book. So I want to say thank you for that right at the top of the show. And of course, if you would like to commission an episode from me for, for ATOS or, or any of our other shows as well, you can get in touch with me via email at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. You can do it on Twitter where I'm at GL McDorman. Uh, also at Clay Temple Media will get to me as well. And you can message us on Facebook or or Reddit if those are your preferred ways of going about communicating with people. But let's talk about Warhammer 40k before we go too much further. Warhammer 40k is a tabletop war game. It's played with miniatures. It is a spinoff from another such game simply called Warhammer. Uh, Warhammer is an epic fantasy game, but Warhammer 40k is set... Well, it's set in the 41st century. It says it in the name, right? It's right there on the box. And it's in space, and I'll talk more about the setting when I get into the the novel recap proper. But what I really want to say here is simply that I have no experience with this game or any other miniature war game. Loads of my friends are really into this hobby, uh, though as we've all gotten into middle age and started families, I spend a lot more painting than playing for my friends who are into that. Uh, Yeah, so loads of my friends are into this, but I was always way more into tabletop RPGs. And in fact, we've got our first RPG novel coming in in a few weeks here on ATOS. That's going to be a Dragonlance book. So I was able to resist this siren call of my friends here, uh, no matter how cool the miniatures looked. But all right, let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's go talk about Xenos. Let me start by saying that since I have no experience with the game, I also have no experience with the fictional world where this novel is set. And I've deliberately kept it that way. So I'm going to explain the world here only in terms of what is in this novel, which eh, may frustrate some 40k fans and, and players since obviously, right, there is a lot more to know. And my ignorance is not necessary. I could have looked these things up. But since what I am trying to do is to evaluate this book on its own terms, that's how I want to go about doing it. So we are in the far, far future, Uh, and that we do really only know because it says 40k on the cover. It's not ever explained in the story, though we can infer this even if we might not be able to say exactly which millennium we're in. Okay, far, far future, and humanity has spread across at least hundreds of star systems. All humanity is connected in a single state that's ruled by an emperor. There are some species of intelligent aliens in the galaxy, but humanity is utterly xenophobic and despises aliens. Humans are forbidden from contact with aliens and forbidden to travel to their regions of space. So this is very definitely not Star Trek. The emperor is also some kind of religious leader, and the government seems really to be a theocratic monarchy. We don't get any explanation of what the religion is called or what its core beliefs or core texts or core rituals are. But we know that it's very important. It is the glue that keeps this massive interstellar society together and also keeps it isolated from these alien civilizations. 
But there are malcontents, right? There are humans who don't practice this religion. They're called heretics, right? And the stamping out of heresy uh, and also the execution of heretics is at the core of Xenos because this is the story of an inquisitor, uh, an agent of the Inquisition that finds and destroys heretics. That inquisitor is Gregor Eisenhorn, and he's quite good at his job. Xenos is his first-person account of one of his jobs. It's not his first job. Uh, it is a particularly exciting job that got a bit out of hand. The Inquisition is an important organization within the imperial government, this theocracy, and inquisitors are able to operate above and, and also outside of both the imperial org chart and, and also imperial law. When an inquisitor makes a statement, that statement is an order, no matter who you are or what your rank might be. Inquisitors seem to operate independently most of the time. They, they find and destroy heresies on their own initiative, though presumably they will also get missions given to them through the chain of command from time to time. And the, and the reason that is not clear to me is simply that Eisenhorn has been on this particular case for a while. We, we come into the story here in, in media res, and I'll get to that case in just a minute, but I, I want to say two more things to set all of this up. The first is that psychic powers are also a thing in this world, and inquisitors possess them. It seems to be a matter of specialized training, but, but also some natural aptitude, though Abnett never spells that out for us. The other thing is that Eisenhorn doesn't work alone. He has a team. He needs someone to fly a spaceship. He needs someone with real serious business psychic powers. Uh, and he's got some other specialists to help him out as well. So Eisenhorn is essentially a wandering police detective with his own special ops team and also a spaceship. Uh, we'll talk more about all of that in the themes and motifs segment. Now, Zenos follows the detective story mold of giving us a case that turns out to be just one piece of a much bigger deal. So I'm going to just skip over the entire first act and get right to the heart of the story here. Eisenhorn discovers that an aristocratic family in one of the more distant parts of the empire are, in fact, a bunch of heretics. But this is not just a matter of having some divergent beliefs, divergent practices. No, uh, they're wrapped up in a major heresy, a major heresy that threatens to destroy the entire empire, or at least plunge the empire into a massive civil war. Now, as I said, I, I am not coming to this book with any outside knowledge from the game or from other books or, or anything I went and read on the internet, but my sense is that this heretical faction is a major feature of the game. Uh, they worship chaos or, or chaos gods or something like that. It's really not entirely clear here. And they have their own uniforms, their own armor, and so on. And Eisenhorn indicates that these people crop up from time to time, and that the main business of the imperial military is fighting wars against these heretics. This particular family, uh, their, their name is Glaw, which is a great name. Uh, the Glaw family, they have a long history of being involved with the chaos religion, but they've been on good behavior for a while. But it turns out, that's all a ruse. Eisenhorn discovers that they are trying to acquire a copy of a heretical book, long thought totally obliterated, but apparently with one surviving copy in the hands of an alien species. This book is called The Necrotuk. I'm going to break that down in the, the next segment. And the, the Necrotuk is an agent of chaos. Anyone who reads it will go insane and become an inherent of this chaos religion. 
And we don't know anything about that religion, but presumably it does what it says on the box, right? It sows chaos, it fights order in all of its forms. These aliens are called the Saruthi. No one really knows anything about them, not even what part of space they occupy. Uh, though it is clear that a, a lot of human worlds used to be inhabited by the Saruthi. Uh, they've got archaeological remains from their ancient civilization, for example. And in fact, that's what the Glaw family is using to trade for the book. They've been excavating Saruthi artifacts on human worlds uh, to offer in return for the Necrotuk. Eisenhorn follows the Glaws to the rendezvous, and it, it turns out that the Saruthi are they're really weird. I'll talk at more length about that in the next segment. But Eisenhorn interrupts the deal. He destroys the book in the process. And that should be the end of it. But it isn't. It turns out that there's one more copy of the Necrotuk in existence. It's uh, an inscription in the Saruthi language on another planet. And the remaining members of the Galaw clan are on their way there now to transcribe and translate it. And of course, they must be stopped. At this point, Eisenhorn reports back to the Inquisition, and they've been becoming increasingly more involved along the way, uh, but now he needs to run this up the chain of command and, and, and get some serious business military assets involved in this pursuit. So off they all go to this other world where they fight a major battle against the private army of the Glaw clan and, and also several military units that are, are loyal to them. There's a ground assault, a, a naval battle, there's a bombardment. It's a really exciting military sequence for the novelization of a tabletop war game here, right? That's what that's doing in the book. During the battle, the Inquisition is betrayed by one of their own. This is uh, someone who is also working with some kind of actual demon. I am not at all clear on what, that, what that's about in terms of the, the setting, but Eisenhorn manages to defeat them both and then get the alien inscription destroyed as the entire planet is leveled from space. And that is the end of the book, and, and seemingly the end of the case. And, and it might actually be. I have intentionally not read the blurb on the Omnibus edition that I have so that I won't know if the other two novels uh, and also the two short stories that are collected here are standalone adventures or if they are continuations of this case. I have no idea. But I really enjoyed this book, and I would not mind finding out. That, in fact, that's part of why I got the Omnibus edition rather than uh, uh, just getting Xenos uh, as a, a standalone book. I had an inkling that I was going to want to read more in this series. I want to move into our themes and motifs segment by talking about the weird fiction elements of this story. Abnett starts us out in a fairly straightforward space opera setting with a, a little bit of psychic powers stuff going on. I mean, really, it's not all that dissimilar to Babylon 5, uh, just with fewer aliens. But as we get into the second act, things start to get weirder. And once we're in the third act and have the whole backstory, we are solidly in a space horror setting. The, the bridge or gateway material, that's probably the, the better way to put it here, this gateway material that we get in the second act, this, this includes the psychic corpse or maybe I should say conscious spirit of the long dead patriarch of the Glaw clan. He's in a sarcophagus, but he can communicate with people and he's attempting to orchestrate his descendants' efforts to get him a new body to live in. Though the heresy stuff takes precedence, and he's essentially forgotten uh, after the second act. We also get some xenoarchaeology, the, the digging up of alien graves and the quest for alien relics. 
and also the realization that parts of human space were once occupied by alien civilizations. And while this is also a perfectly normal thing to do on Earth, I mean, not the... (laughs) Not the aliens part, right? But the previous inhabitants part. Uh, But even though excavating the sites of previous inhabitants is a normal thing to do, even here on Earth, the, the whole thing feels a bit like at the Mountains of Madness. There's a real sense of eerie discovery to all of this. Finally, in this act here, in this third act, we get our first Chaos Marine. Now, I'm inferring that this is something that most readers are going to come to this book already knowing about because it is a playable faction in the game, and the miniatures are really cool looking, but it was my first exposure to it. And and these are heretics, and, and that can be a perfectly mundane thing, of course. Lots of just perfectly mundane heretics in basically every human religion. But the weird element to them is that their armor has a design on it that drives people mad if they look at it for too long. Uh, And in fact, Eisenhorn starts to experience some of that. It's a really tense scene. But the really exciting stuff comes once we start chasing the book uh, and meet the aliens, meet the the Saruthi. Uh, Let's talk about the book first, the, the Necrotuk. This is a heretical book that will drive people mad. And it is not just a matter of a persuasive argument or a kind of compelling spiritual revelation in the text. It is simply the act of reading it, being exposed to the book's language that will drive you mad. This is straight out of Robert W. Chambers' 1895 weird fiction short story cycle called The King in Yellow, uh, which has then appeared in a lot of different stories. I mean, this one, obviously, but even also the first season of True Detective, for example. And this story collection, this is one of my absolute favorite pieces of weird fiction. We're a little more than halfway through it on Elder Sign, our our weird fiction podcast. And in fact, I have picked a story from it as my favorite story of the year in each of our year in review shows so far. So uh, I highly recommend checking out Chambers if this is an idea that interests you and you haven't read Chambers before. And I've been intentionally trying to pace us, trying to make us uh, savor each of these stories, even though I want Brandon and I to just read through it. Now, the name of this book is also interesting. It's a perfectly fine word in ancient Greek that would just mean book of the dead. But the necro bit here, that's the, that's the dead bit. The, the necro bit here cannot help but make us think of that other really important made-up book in weird fiction. That is H.P. Lovecraft's The Necronomicon. And there is some Lovecraftian weird fiction going on here as well. The entire Saruthi civilization has gone over to the Chaos religion because of their exposure to the Necrotuk. And there seem to have been several results from this, uh, though it's not entirely clear that the Saruthi weren't already weird in the weird fiction sense. Foremost, they seem to have left physical space, and that's why there are so many formerly Saruthi planets without any actual Saruthi on them. They live at least partially in some kind of hyperspace, I guess, and they certainly use that to travel. That bit is clear. And they also can create artificial environments. Uh, this happens during the, the trade for the last copy of the Necrotuk. And these environments are defined by weird arches that don't seem to obey the laws of physics or geometry. And, and weird geometry is straight out of Lovecraft. Though some of this description also sounds a little bit like the Zindi arc in the third season of Star Trek Enterprise. But at any rate, weird geometry also describes Saruthi bodies, and the implication is that their long-term exposure to the Nacrotuk has even reshaped their physiology. It's, It's real creepy. It's really, really well done. 
So the whole backstory to Xenos is this mashup of the central idea of the king in yellow, and then one of Lovecraft's most iconic phrases, non-Euclidean geometry. But it's also all dialed up to 11, at least in terms of scale, right? An entire space-faring civilization has succumbed to madness and been physically reshaped by reading a book. It is a lot of fun. I love also the slow build to it. We don't really get this backstory until the final act. And that is a great way to do it, right? I think the impulse so many of us, so many writers have, is to start with that, right? Even if we are starting with that in our imagination, I think this is the better way to do it. Put it here at the end. Make that all a revelation for the character. So well done. And I do want to emphasize that I really enjoyed this book because I am now going to get a little grumpy about it. Xenos is a detective story. It's a detective story that leads to some weird fiction elements and along the way is about exploring a speculative world, an imaginary setting. I love that sort of thing. I also write that sort of thing. A good chunk of my own writing has been about my private detective, Paul Henslow, I mean, about his encounters with unsavory cults in a pseudo-Victorian fake London. Uh, in fact, one of them draws fairly heavily on some elements of the King in Yellow, just as, uh, just as Zenos does here. But anyway, I bring that up really just to say that I'm invested. I'm emotionally <laughs> invested in this type of story. And I have thoughts about what Abnett has done here, about the choices that he's made. And there are two choices that I want to look at. And let me be clear up front. I think he chose poorly in both cases, but I'm going to explain why. The first of these choices is the voice. Abnett wrote this book in first person, in the voice of his detective, of Eisenhorn. There's a long tradition of this, right? The quintessential writer of hard-boiled detective stories is Raymond Chandler, one of my favorite writers of all time. I mean, I will just read Chandler over and over again. Uh, Chandler also, by the way, uh, total aside here, but Chandler also has a detective story. It's a short story uh, called The King in Yellow, though it has nothing to do with Robert W. Chambers or, or anything weird. Uh, though, you know, that does not mean that I have not riffed on it extensively in my own stuff because I love that connection, that kind of coincidence there. But anyway, Chandler, whose, whose writing career overlaps with Lovecraft's, Chandler wrote his stories in the first person, in the voice of his detective, uh, Philip Marlowe. And Marlowe's voice is really strong. Uh, his worldview, uh, also his sarcasm, his crazy similes, these are hallmarks of Chandler's work. And because these were so successful, they became much imitated. Uh, I think even the default mode now is to write detective stories in the first person, and that's really because of Chandler. But the thing about first person is that it's really tough to do. You have to have a strong voice for the character, right? The story has to feel like a real person is telling the story to us like at a party or something like that. So you can't just write it the same way that you would write a third-person story, just with slightly different grammar. To be honest, I've written some first-person. I prefer third-person for, for reasons that will become clear here. But in my experience, writing first-person in an authentic character voice is more like doing improv acting than it is like writing, to be honest. You have to think about what parts of a story, what aspects of the world and, and, and things about other people matter to your character such that he will emphasize them when he's telling his tale to other very real people. You also have to think about what he'll leave out. 
And you have to think about how he'll say it, right? What's his tone? Why is he telling this story? What does your character think this story is about for him? Who is he telling it to and and why, right? Why is he telling this story? And it is really, really hard to do. I, I have pulled it off once. I've tried many times, but I've succeeded only one time. But most of the time, anything I write in the first-person voice gets universally rejected by editors, I I think about two paragraphs in. And here's where I think Abnett shows poorly. Because Abnett doesn't bother with any of that. The story is grammatically in the first person, but Eisenhorn has no voice, and he has no character attributes. The story is a third-person limited story that just happens to have a lot of sentences that begin with I. We get no sense of who Eisenhorn is. We get no sense of what matters to him, what he thinks about people and institutions in this world, or even, really, his motivations. Now, to be fair, we do actually get some of that in the first few chapters, but it feels like Abnett just has set that up and then abandoned it without realizing that these things have to be core elements of the storytelling. And it's also not just what's left out here, it's also what's left in. The descriptive passages, and there are a lot of descriptive passages in this book, they're entirely written in a third-person mode. They're they're not at all written in a first-person mode, even when some of those sentences are beginning with I. No one telling the story of how they were tortured and left with a facial paralysis would bother to describe what everyone was wearing unless those details tell us something about the characters, like their their class, uh, their institutional affiliation, something like that, right? That's the only reason that you would keep those details in. We simply don't include things like that for the sole purpose of painting a picture when we're telling stories to people. We do that when we are writing books in the third person that have an emphasis on what things look like, that have an emphasis on description. And so we get whole paragraphs of description that simply would not matter to anyone in the moment, but at the same time don't get at anything about what the narrator is feeling or really even thinking about this stuff either. So I know that got a little rambly there, but my point is this. Abnett really ought to have just written this book in the third person if what he wanted to focus on was descriptions of landscapes and uniforms and spaceships rather than on the inner emotional life of Eisenhorn. And if you're someone who's listened to this show for a long time or or, to the network more broadly, in fact, maybe especially if you've listened to other shows on the network, then you know I am here for landscape descriptions. That's what I want out of speculative fiction more than just about anything else. So it wasn't like those descriptions were bad. They just didn't work in this book because they did not at all jive with the storytelling mode. There's another problem as well with the fact that this is in the first person, but it's really a discrete topic here, and that is the question of what type of detective story is this? Or really, what type of detective is Eisenhorn? This first person tradition, the the tradition of Raymond Chandler, this works really well with private detectives, uh, people who are maybe tough guys, but who are at the same time essentially powerless in the world, right? Because they're not cops. They don't have any sort of institutional backing uh, and in fact are usually very much disliked by cops and seen as parasites. Though, of course, right, (laughs) those cops are all also incompetent, corrupt, or usually both. And the private detective is the paladin who is going to do their job for them for less money and with no help. uh, And also, well, getting beat up a lot along the way, beat up by cops usually. But of course, that's only one type of detective story, right? There are a lot of different types of detective story out there. Another of them is the police procedural in which the detective is a police officer working with the full authority of the government. Someone who, unlike the private detective like Philip Marlowe, 
someone who has a lot of power in the world. Ed McBain is really the foundational writer for this type of story, I I think. Police procedurals are almost always written in the third person, and and that is because one of the things that is drawing us, the audience, into the story is a desire to watch the system at work without making it about the inner life of a, a single police officer. These stories are often actually ensemble stories, though they they certainly don't have to be. And this move, right, of course, this is part of why they're hugely successful on TV, right? There are way more police procedural shows than private detective shows. And even the private detective shows that we get turn into ensemble shows pretty quickly. Now, Eisenhorn is not a private detective. He's a cop. He is an arm of the law. And and really, he's not even a cop. He's the, the vicar of an absolute monarch. He is not an arm of the law so much as he is the law. He is the most powerful person in any room, and anything he says is an order to anyone. He is legally invincible. There are no rules for him. And this also means, quite simply, that he can get whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. This can work just fine in a story, but not in a first-person story. So much of this story has a real feeling of Mary Sue-ness to it, right? Which is to say that uh, it feels like it's really just a story about how awesome Eisenhorn is because Eisenhorn has no checks. He's got no constraints in his power here. Yeah, there, there, there are obstacles, right? There are heretics who resist his power. But in the quiet moments of the story, especially in the first act, Eisenhorn just has way too much power for us, the readers, to empathize with him, which is the entire point of writing this in the first person, right? So that we, the audience, will care about what happens to a character. And that brings me to the last thing that I want to say about different types of detective stories. Because there is a long tradition, in fact, longer than either of the others I've talked about, uh, there is a very long tradition of the magical detective, who is essentially a superhero who solves cases by uh, just being more awesome than everyone else, like Eisenhorn does here. And that is who Sherlock Holmes is. That's who Hercule Poirot is. Uh, That's who C. Auguste Dupin is. And these stories, they're written in the first person, but they're not written in the voice of the detective. They're written in the voice of the detective's assistant, right? Watson writes the Sherlock Holmes stories. In that way, we can have a distinct voice for our narrator, right? We can feel like there's a real person there telling us a story, but we can also enjoy the adventures of an overpowered detective without the story feeling like bragging. Because to be honest, that's mostly what Eisenhorn's voice feels like in this story. Eisenhorn is just a braggart. He's just someone who thinks really highly of himself and does not mind letting you know about it. This story, which I did really enjoy, let me be clear about that, but this story would have been so much better if Abnett had simply written it in the third person. Because he mostly just did that anyway. But I do think he also could have told a really compelling story about Eisenhorn and the Necrotook in the first person from the point of view of, say, someone else on Eisenhorn's team. So just to sum all of this up for other people who might be thinking about this from a writing craft perspective, and I know we have a lot of writers in the the network's audience, if Dan Abnett were in a writing group that meets at my local library and he had us workshopping the first 50 pages of this novel, I would tell him that he either needs to make Eisenhorn a private detective who has to work outside the law and for whom other people can be actual obstacles, or he needs to write the story in the third person. And and better yet, both really. But even just doing one of those things would have made this a much stronger story. 
So I guess it's clear that I think the voice of the the narrative and, and also the power of the detective are real weaknesses in this story. And so I'm just going to go ahead and say that, hey, we have transitioned into the strengths and weaknesses segment of this episode. But I was really trying to think about the story in terms of the genre of detective stories, which we have been doing here on the show for a while with Powers by Brian Michael Bendis, Zodiac by Neil Stevenson, and The City in the City by China Mieville, uh, also others, and there are others to come. And also, we do a lot of occult detective stories over on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast uh, as well. In fact, also, Brent and I have actually just recorded uh, an episode about a Neil Gaiman Sherlock Holmes pastiche for uh, hanging out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast. So this is something we think about and talk about a lot on the network. And I really wanted to situate this story in the, the tradition of that genre, the history of that genre, but then also just the specific context of what we've done on this show. But all right, so those were the, the weaknesses, really. That, that's all I would have to say about the weaknesses of this book that I really did love. And I think that the real strength of Xenos is in the world itself. I love a good space opera universe. I mean, the more sprawling, the better. And this felt just right to me. But I also really appreciate the religious elements to this world. We have done a lot of detective stories on the show, but this is the first in which the detective is policing people's religious beliefs and executing them for them. It's obviously a very sinister way of putting it. And well, that's a tone that I really enjoyed here. The whole thing has the trappings of a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, except that maybe everyone is evil, and that's awesome. But bringing it back to the institutional side of religion, I was really fascinated by how the Empire functions and the, the place of the Inquisition in the Empire and the, the functioning of the Imperial government. Near the end of the book, we get a few scenes with a quorum of the Inquisition convened to discuss Eisenhorn's discoveries, uh, also to, to question his decisions. Abnett describes their spaceship like it's a, a temple of some sort, and we see Inquisitors engaged in religious rituals. This is a pretty minor part of these scenes, I'll say, but I, I would have really loved a whole lot more of it. Indeed, I, I think one of my critiques about the use of the first-person voice here is simply the fact that Eisenhorn is a priest who puts his life in danger in order to punish people for their religious beliefs and their religious practices, and, and that should be way more central to his characterization than it is. I wanted a lot more about this, because it is very cool and very interesting. Well, that brings my review to a close today, but I do hope that you will visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or stop by our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs, as well as the strengths and weaknesses that I have focused on, but also on what I left out. First and foremost, Warhammer 40k is a war game, and so this book, even though it is a detective story, still has a lot of battles and a lot of space marines. In, and in fact, right, it would have been entirely worthwhile for me to have talked about Xenos in the tradition of military science fiction, or just military fiction in general, without the, the sci-fi element. And so I would love to talk with you about that if you've got thoughts about it. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. So I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the very first Dragonlance novel. I am super, super excited for that, and I hope to see you there. But until then, 
I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.